Hi investors, this is Danny with Investorly. At Investorly, we empower you to invest early in your financial future. We recently launched A Conversation With, our audio series on Twitter. In this episode, we welcomed Mark Richardson, the senior research associate at Bancor. He explained his history as a research scientist, his role at the Bancor protocol, the BNT token, and his perspective on the future of the crypto ecosystem. To stay informed of upcoming episodes and receive our insightful weekly newsletter, subscribe at investorly.substack.com. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. At Investorly, we, we always preach investing early. Now, what is your history with investing and, and how has it shaped you? Growing up, um, I was kind of watching what was happening for the boomers generation with real estate. And I'm sure that this has been a phenomenon around the world. Um, New York and San Francisco come to mind, you know, other parts of um, California. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, many other places went through this where um, as sort of civilization was still in that settling down period, sort of after World War II, I guess. Um, and, you know, there was this uh, unprecedented um, period of, of economic growth um, that, you could buy a house sort of in the um, pretty close vicinity of, of Sydney's um, eastern suburbs or northern suburbs, for example, for something like $60,000. Um, and today those are selling for 1,000 to 10,000 times that price. Um, and you know, it's just it's just ridiculous. And I remember thinking, well, you know, imagine if I had been born during that period, how easy it would have been to make money. You know, all you needed to do was really have it, um, have a a regular sort of job. You didn't even need to be um, paid very well or, or super qualified. And as long as you were at that point in, in time, if you poured your money into this one resource, it would sort of just pay itself, you know, dividends back to you at the time that you wanted to withdraw it. Um, but I became increasingly aware that things like the law of diminishing returns means that this is going to be completely unsustainable. Although my elders were always of the conviction that real estate can only ever go up, right? It's never going to come back down. Um, but, you know, a quick back of the envelope calculation sort of shows that, well, you know, imagine if we were to continue those returns at any sort of point in job, you would expect that all of these houses that people are, you know, people my age are now buying, hoping to, to sell it at a, a similar level of profit. It's not really clear who they're going to be selling these houses to, you know, uh, maybe the, the Kardashian family or Kanye West or someone is, is you know, the, the caliber of person that they're expecting to, um, you know, be able to palm these, these investments off on. And so I think that, you know, if I was to think about investing early, what I realized was I had already missed the train on real estate, right? It's one of those things like a, a once in a civilization um, sort of investment opportunity that's kind of come and gone. And so for me, it, it was about, okay, well, if, if that worked for them, what's the next thing, right? What's the, the most interesting thing to do with money in, you know, 2020? Um, and for, uh, I think it's pretty clear to, to everyone on this call and hopefully, um, you know, the rest of the world is waking up to it as well, that blockchain is going to be sort of that new, um, that new growth thing, right? I was only a teenager when, um, when the, the dot-com um, investment um, opportunity hit and obviously I didn't have much, much money to invest then. So I think, you know, it, it's just a question of finding that thing that, you, that you're still early for 
and making sure that you um that you act when the opportunity is there. So it's I, I hope that that's kind of a, a relatively good you know a relatively good answer. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you were hoping for, but I I I, I that's my answer and I, I stand by it. No, Mark, I like that. That's actually a great response. Is uh, comparing the the real estate boom to the the blockchain or crypto space because. Yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, their real estate has been missed out, and I feel like, you know, uh, maybe it's not, but real estate could be a, another bubble that we're in the middle of right now uh, with right. astronomical real estate prices. So, uh, but people, as you said, you know, people always thought it would go up. So in two thousand seven, they thought the exact same thing. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so exactly had, right. They had to wait yeah. a while, <laughs> but again, <laughs> uh, with crypto, I mean, in two thousand seven, the same scenario, you know. Uh, Bitcoin almost hit twenty thousand, and um, you know, people thought they if they bought at eighteen thousand, that was a hell of a deal. Uh, well, they had yeah, to wait. right. They had to wait actually four years. I think that you know the the Gartner hype cycle kind of ties well into these kinds of things, where you know there's you can be uh, you know early is kind of a relative term. I think that what we've seen for um, for things like Bitcoin and Ethereum during that that first parabolic rise up. Right is kind of that um, that new technology initiation, I think they call it, where um, people can see the value in it. They get super excited, really, um, uh, really sort of manic about the possibilities, and you see a, a huge amount of um, of you know rapid inflation in the price of of the thing, and then you kind of enter into this you know chasm of you know what the actual reality is of the technology usually it's um a, a little bit disappointing people get super um you know super melancholy about the fact that you know it's not really ready to deliver on all of these things that they um that they thought that it would and so you enter into this kind of trough of sobriety followed by what i think is called the um the, the sustainability right or some sort of plateau where um things start to get more optimistic again after people have realized that there's still a lot of work to be done. And so I, I kind of, in terms of the Gartner hype cycle, which I'm still critical of, I don't, I don't think that it is, you know, um, the best description for things, but for better or for worse, it, it, it does have a, a descriptive value to it. And so I think that that initial parabolic run for Ethereum in particular was that, you know, that, um, uh, that really, um, optimistic and naive, right? Um, initial investment phase. And so if you were early to catch that and still sell at the top, then investing early is still a really good idea. But I don't feel like the train has left, right? I still think that we've got this huge run up to this plateau of sustainability where the technology actually starts to deliver on all of the promises that, um, that it set out to. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd say that there's kind of two two interesting points when it comes to investing early in emerging technologies. One is like right at the genesis, which has already come and gone for cryptocurrency. And then the second um, sort of early investment opportunity is at the bottom of that dip after the initial um, mania has worn off. And I still think, or you know, I speculate that we're probably in that trough um, for cryptocurrency and blockchain technology in general. Yeah, that's uh, that was a fascinating breakdown of of the way you described being uh, early at, for investing. How it is relative, and it's a nice breakdown. It's always fascinating to listen to you uh, break things down. And so, we want to dive into Bancor for sure. And obviously, I read the. I just got finished reading the Bancor in the weekly summary, and uh, have some questions there. But before we get going, because I know that there's definitely a lot of listeners uh, that are very new. 
and maybe they don't, this is their first real exposure to hearing from the Bancorp team and Bancorp specifically. Can we hear about sort of what's your background? I mean, is it in coding? Was it in another profession? And like what were you in that brought you to essentially end up focusing on crypto and Bancorp? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my background is, um, I, I, I want to say unusual for the space, but I'm beginning to feel like that's not the case. So I, I didn't come from an economics or finance background or even a coding background, although I can code. Uh, I was actually a research scientist for, for 14 years. Um, I have a, a Bachelor of Science with first class honors from uh, Macquarie University in Sydney. I have my um, Doctorate of Philosophy in Organic Synthesis from the University of Melbourne. I did my first postdoctoral stint in California at, um, at UCI. I was a, an organic chemistry lecturer there for two years as well. Uh, I came back to Australia um, at the beginning of, actually at the end of uh, 2018, and I started my second postdoctoral appointment as a, uh, a researcher for the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, which is the company that invented Wi-Fi. Um, and there I was working on a couple of different things. Um, I picked up a research grant and complete a, a huge leg of work under the supervision of Peter Seeberger at the Max Planck Institute in Potsdam in Germany. Um, and the German government was actually gonna fund me to do that. So it was a, a pretty significant um, pretty significant grant. Um, and so I spent all of 2019 basically preparing my research materials ready to take with me to, um, to Berlin. And then um, about a week before my uh, flight out of Melbourne um, was due to leave, um, Australia closed its borders to international travel due to the uh, COVID-19. Um, pandemic in 2020. And that began, that was the, the beginning of what ended up being about a nine month lockdown in um, in the city where I live. I wasn't getting a, a huge amount of work done. Obviously that year of work that I'd done um, preparing to go to Germany was completely wasted. Um, and I could just kind of see that, you know, it, was a, it wasn't a really good time to sort of be doing what I was doing. Um, so my you know, my supervisors at CSIRO wanted me to write review papers and other things, um, but I was really starting to look for the the exit. Um, research has, has been a, a really, like, you know, chemistry research has been a really terrific thing for me to, to spend my time on. But I was really starting to think that um, I, I want to do something where there's a lot, a lot less kind of red tape, something that's not quite as, as highly regulated, something that doesn't require um, you know, huge amounts of, of government or institutional support, something where you can transform ideas into reality very quickly. Um, and so I'd been actually self-teaching myself um, programming languages for the, the past, um, you know, three, three or four years. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm by no means a, an expert programmer at all, but I can, you know, read and write in um, things like C and Python um, well enough to sort of get by. Um, but it turns out what I'm much better at is, is generating um, generating new ideas in sort of financial and, and economic, um, you know, practices. So I ended up in uh, becoming involved with the, the Bancor protocol um, during that lockdown period where in, in Germany. Um, so, you know, again, coming back to the theme of the, the conversation about investing early, I had a, a little bit of money saved up and I was thinking, you know, what, what's going to be the, the most interesting thing to do with that. And so I started, um, 
in Bitcoin, as I think most people do, but then sort of quickly transitioned into things that I thought had more um, more impact potential on the on the world. Um, so Ethereum was my, you know, the blockchain I kind of settled on and DeFi was the the product that I thought market fit. Um, I spent a, a bit of time sort of exploring uh, a lot of the AMM protocols because I thought that the this was the, the one thing that if you had to pin in, in DeFi um, was doing something better than, it, than its alternative, right? Um, whereas things like lending protocols are still great, but they, they have an analog in traditional finance that's more or less the same. Whereas AMMs are doing something completely new. And um, I, I see that as being something completely transformative the same way that the Google search engine sort of replaced the yellow pages when it comes to, you know, finding information or, or contact information for people that you want. So, you know, I was a member of the, um, the KyberSwap uh, community. Uh, I spent some time in Uniswap. Um, I was there when um, SushiSwap created the its fork. Um, but I was also sort of paying really close attention to what Bancor was doing. And they had this very different narrative to everything else that was going on. So things like Uniswap and SushiSwap were very, very focused on liquidity mining rewards. And, um, you know, it, it was very sort of uh, skin deep sort of um, discussion as to what AMMs were actually doing for, for the world. The discussions at Bancor and within that community were very different. Right. It was it was much more about, you know, the, the fact that the, the AMM is an is an economic primitive and um, sorry, a financial primitive. And what is the you know, the actual liquidity problem and, and where did it come from? And the reason why I think that these discussions are in, within Bancor were a little bit more developed was because Bancor was actually and I didn't realize it when I when I joined them, um, but they were the the first AMM um, out there. Right. The, the actual technology was invented by Bancor and then later um, adopted and adapted by, um, by Uniswap and, and everyone else. Um, and so while I was there, I was like, well, you know, how can I be useful? Um, they launched their DAO in the, at the beginning of October and I was there for that. And, um, you know, I, I bought a bunch of BNT and started um, staking it. Um, and then that awards you this BBNT token, which I think is something we're gonna be talking about later. But that basically means that you have um, a voice in, in what happens in the management of the protocol. So I used my VBNT tokens to start drafting policy for um, how the DAO should be structured, how it should operate, um, and you know what would define a, a healthy protocol. Um, and I also started designing sort of new um, financial features. Um, and so by uh, by December, I was collaborating with Eyal Herzog, who is the the actual the individual who conceptualized the AMM first. Um, one of the um, the founders of Bancor, and so he and I were working on um, a way for um, BNT liquidity providers to kind of access leverage um, through the the swapping of VBNT tokens for something else. And so we can talk about that a little bit later. It's a, it's a, a pretty complex um, system that we have, but the short version is that it's a um, an interest free loan system that um, also has no risk of liquidation. Um, and that at the time was was the first of its kind. Uh, we've seen a, a couple more um, products like it since. I, I, I would speculate inspired by this product. Um, but it was something that became a, a very central part of the, the Bancor narrative at the time. Um, and I think maybe off the, the strength of the success of that, um, the, the foundation actually reached out to me and said, hey, you know, it's a full-time job. Would you consider leaving it and working for us full-time um, and doing, you know, doing research for, for us and helping to develop the 
the product fully. I've been looking for an opportunity just like this. So I basically gave my two weeks notice at CSIRO and, and started uh, full-time research for Bancor. Wow, that is, that's really impressive, Mark. So, uh, well, just like many of us, I, I call 2020 uh, the year of the pivot and the year of the hustle. So <laughs> yeah, right. you, def you, you definitely took a heavy pivot there um when you uh when you left csi um and uh which leads leads to the next question so bancor has uh you know you started at bancor you you kind of took a dive in deeper and deeper into not just you said you started in bitcoin and ethereum uh but you took a dive deeper into um other altcoins and pro protocols and things like that and you landed at bancor um so in the most simplistic form Bancor has a lot of features on it. There's a lot of different things you can do on it. It's almost, you know, it's it's like five and one, I kind of call it. What's yeah. the, the most simplistic term or sentence you would say that Bancor is? Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So, so Bancor is a, you know, it, it is the, a DEX. <laughs> it's a decentralized exchange. But, you know, for, for people that are, are sort of not familiar with DeFi, um, what Bancor is, is that it, um, it it allows the value of stuff to be realized without anyone having to quote it. So the, you know, it, in traditional finance, there is, you know, someone called a, a market maker, and they have this huge responsibility of having to sort of decide when um, someone buys or sells something from the market, what the price, well, you know, what the actual value of those two things are going to be. And so if you think about, you know, what, when someone says the price of Bitcoin is $50,000 now, I don't think many people sit back and think, you know, what does that even mean, right? Does that mean that if I've got any amount of Bitcoin that I can sell them all for $50,000, right? Of course not. There are things like spreads and other things that cause the price of Bitcoin to, to change. And so the act of buying it, any transaction of buying it, causes its price to move up a little bit. And any, any sale causes the price to move down a little bit. The problem here is that that person in the middle that decides how far um, and when the, the price moves, um, they have a huge amount of, um, of responsibility and power, and that power is extremely corruptible. And so this is one of the oldest forms of white collar crime where governments and uh, large corporations, for example, can deliberately with how the, the price quoting happens just by simply buying a, a market maker. Um, and so what Bancor sought to do in the very beginning, right, when it was dealing with community currencies, is basically how do you completely replace that whole process with something that's completely trustless, transparent, and that everybody to. So I know that this, this, you know, this answer is definitely not the one sentence that you asked for. Um, but when I say that Bancor is, <laughs> is a DEX, you know, this is what I mean, right? It is a completely decentralized, trustless version of the value um, the the value discovery process that we've had with us since the beginning of civilization um and I, I think that that's a really important change right it's the first time that money and its value is no no longer requires a human at the at the center of it to make a judgment call for how much it's worth and that's what bancor brings to the to the universe well that is uh that's actually a much better answer than than uh, one sentence. So they broke it down. You broke it down much better than what I expected. So thank you for that. Yeah, my um, pleasure. Yeah, that was great. Uh, so since 2017, you said it, um, it was kind of the first AMM. How has Bancor yeah. evolved since then? Uh, I know you, I know you haven't been there since yeah. 2017, but you, you've seen this yeah, and you've obviously uh, yeah, yeah, I've spent, founder. 
yeah, I spent some time sort of studying it. Um, so Bancor actually started as a, a community currency project, right? So there was um, there are places in you know in the world where unfortunately a national currency system or the, the the banking system is so hopelessly corrupt or dysfunctional that the the native currency is is practically worthless. I can think of you know places where, for example, hyperinflation has has dug in its claws, and um, you know the the lowest is like the one hundred trillion dollar bill or something. I think that um, there's Zimbabwe. I think has this has the high, has a, a particularly pronounced a hyperinflation issue, but we've also seen places like Lebanon go through it. There's actually a risk that it will happen to the United States. Um, although I think that risk is a little bit more obscure than many um, in the cryptocurrency community believe it is. But whatever. Um, the point is, is that the, the, the currency that your government gives you to use is not always a good currency to, uh, it's not always a useful currency for, for normal things. Like if you want to go to the hairdresser or go to the, the grocer or something, um, the, the government's fiat can sometimes be completely um, unusable. And so Bancor started introducing community currencies that are like, okay, here's something with a fixed supply and you guys can all trade it with each other. And um, it would manage to sustain the community actually pretty well, right? So as a little contained economy um, of, you know, maybe a few hundred users, it was really possible to sustain, um, to sustain itself. But these things would eventually sort of fizzle out and die because these uh, community currencies had no way of knowing their, their exchange rate to anything else. So the, the moment that you have to do something outside of that economic bubble, and I don't mean bubble in the sense of a speculative bubble, I mean something that's like insulated from the rest of the, um, the economies around it. Um, so as soon as you wanted to, for example, buy gasoline, or if you wanted to, I don't know, buy um, concrete or pay a, a salary to a visitor or something, these community currencies immediately fell over. And so that was kind of their weak point. And because they were so niche, because they were so small, incentivizing a market maker to sort of help establish an exchange rate to, for example, the US dollar or to gold or, or you know, any other asset that the, that the world has was basically impossible. And so this is where the AMM was born. How do you come up with a system where you don't need to incentivize someone to help you, you know, learn the value of something? And so the um, the idea of a liquidity pool, which back then I think was called, uh, actually they were always called liquidity pools, but the tokens that it generated were once called relay tokens and then smart tokens, and now we call them pool tokens, but all the same technology. And so this the idea of having this constant product um, algorithm that replaced the decision-making of the market maker um, so that community currencies could have an exchange rate into US dollars was, was really useful, right? It was something that was required to, to support these community currencies. But then uh, it was very quickly realized by, um, by Bancor's founders that this isn't just a solution that you can apply to community currencies. This is a solution you can apply to literally every single market that exists. Right, anything where you've got a liquid asset that needs to be valued against another liquid asset, you can use an AMM pool now rather than a um, a sophisticated professional um, to make that decision for you. So that was kind of the the real transition was they were dealing with these um, you know community currencies and then trying to work out how to value those. And then once they kind of broken that problem, that you know they they had a solution for that. They realized that that solution was much more general. And so you could do it for Bitcoin, you could do it for Ethereum, you could do it for any of the cryptocurrencies on blockchain, but you can also do it for things that aren't on blockchain. 
Um, there's no reason why the AMM model can't be used to value gold versus the US dollar or anything else. Um, and so that kind of pivoted towards the um, an exchange model. But back then, um, the it was a very different time. You know, the um, the first version of Bancor was still a very heavily KYC'd platform. So it was it wasn't necessarily permissionless, although it was kind of pseudo anonymous. If you wanted to create a liquidity pool there, um, you would basically have to contact us, and we would send you the. <laughs> it was exactly like you know um, establishing a market on something like Coinbase or, or Binance. Um, and the reason for that was that our, our, our lawyers in, in Switzerland were said that what you've invented here is an exchange. And so we should basically treat it um, as an exchange and, and make sure that we're regulatory uh, compliant with um, you know, US and European laws on how an exchange should be run. And so for a, a while, that was running fine, right? The the um, a lot of new token projects for that time period, which, by the way, was a sort of a dirty topic at the time. It was, you know, we kind of take it for granted now that having your own token is just something that's required, right? You can't have a business model without it. But back in 2017, having your own token was akin to running a scam, and the the Ethereum Foundation and Vitalik Buterin. Um, you know, have been very vocal about, you know, that there are, there should be no need for any token except ETH. Um, and so Bancor was kind of uh, targeted, um, especially by um, the Ethereum Foundation for um, for not using Ethereum as the base asset in all of its liquidity pools. Um, instead, Bancor was using BNT. And, you know, thankfully now there's a kind of utility that we get out of um, not having Ethereum in the pools, which is um, I think going to stifle some of the other AMM protocols that are still using Ethereum, but whatever. The there was a huge amount of animosity towards it, and um, the the immediate um, one of the uh, immediate consequences for that is that the Ethereum Foundation decided to fund um, this uh, prodigy programmer named uh, Hayden Adams, and uh, what he did was he took the the Bancor smart contracts ripped uh, the BNT token out of them or the requirement for the BNT token out of them and replaced it with ETH, right? As the, the Ethereum Foundation had requested. Um, and in doing so also on some other um, simplifications that made it slightly more gas efficient or actually profoundly more gas efficient in many cases. Um, and then released Uniswap. And so, you know, it, it's kind of been this uh, source of, let's say tension or it's, uh, some would say bad blood. Um, between Bancor and, and Uniswap because Bancor was kind of first to the plate with this really cool new invention um, that received a huge amount of criticism for very powerful, um, you know, you know, very powerful entity inside the blockchain space who then took the idea and then, you know, uh, replaced it, you know, replaced the, the thing that they didn't like about it with their own product and then released the fork of it. So that... Um, that was kind of the the genesis of Uniswap. And the other thing that Uniswap did was that they um, ignored all of the regulation that would usually uh, be afforded to to an exchange. And so they were doing things that our lawyers were telling us that we couldn't. Things like you can tell LPs that they can earn fees by doing this, right? Or you can have the pools be permissionless and anyone can set one up. And so Uniswap was kind of really, I think, a good um, a good step in our evolution. Like it, it's impossible to ignore their um, their influence on us, because they really did demonstrate that you don't necessarily have to uh, take regulation as gospel, right? That there is kind of flexibility there. 
And as long as um, things are working well and people aren't being, you know, scammed out of huge amounts of money or something, the, the regulators will kind of let you experiment a little bit with these new technologies. And so we, you know, inspired by um, their moves, we decided to flip from this highly permissioned protocol to something that's a lot more decentralized, a lot more anonymous. Um, and so that was the, the, the biggest, I would say, turning point in Bancor's evolution. Um, but during that process, right, of moving from something that's very much looking like a centralized exchange to something that looks like the decentralized and anonymous exchange that it is today, we were also discovering these other kinds of uh, economic um, effects that we hadn't really, you know, seen before. Because the AMM is such a, a new thing, the, it, its economic behavior and financial consequences are also sort of being discovered at the same time. We were, uh, you know, as the, the first AMM, we also started to notice this thing that we now call impermanent loss, which means that if you provide uh, liquidity to one of these AMM pools, over time, um, you might actually lose money rather than make it, which seems counterintuitive because fees are being paid into the pool all the, all the time. Um, and as we started to realize, you know, what the um, what the, the the source of impermanent loss was, we very quickly started to change our mission plan to um, be uh, releasing an AMM protocol that does away with impermanent loss. Right, that means that liquidity providers who are you know supporting the economy um, don't have to expose themselves to this 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 risk of, of ending up with less money than they started with. And so, Bancor released its version two in April of 2020. And this was a, a profoundly different type of automatic market maker. It was very, um, very thoroughly intertwined with Chainlink technology. It used a, um, a very fast uh, price feed oracle in order to, uh, and a, a different kind of bonding curve to adjust the, uh, the way that the market maker quotes prices to traders. And this meant that if you were a liquidity provider there, you're basically always selling or buying tokens market rate which meant that you're never, um, you know, the you're never having to sell tokens at a discount in order to help fund the price discovery component of what the AMM does. Um, and this was working really well for a little while, um, but the adversarial nature of Ethereum was uh, ended up proving itself to be insurmountable. Um, people were uh, not exploiting, but they were kind of gaming the the way that the algorithm worked by adjusting the, um, the price of, of stuff in the pool so that in future um, blocks, there would be a, a financial incentive for them to, to perform a different kind of action. Um, and so the protocol eventually proved unsustainable, mostly because of um, what we now call um, you know, minor extractable value, which at the time didn't really have a, a name. Um, but that was kind of you know, a really sad day for us. So Bancor, up until this point, right? I'm, I'm sorry, this story is kind of long, but as an old project, you know, there have been several, you know, uh, checkpoints along the way that I would say have been hugely influential in our evolution. So at this point, we've gone from community currencies to developing the first AMM to uh, becoming a completely decentralized and autonomous, uh, sorry, a completely decentralized and anonymous AMM to then this spectacularly complex um, really quite academically beautiful implementation of that thing, but where um, opportunists on Ethereum were able to exploit it in order to get it to do stuff that it wasn't supposed to do. So we then very quickly transitioned from version 2 to version 2.1, which still had um, this uh, no impermanent loss, but with a completely different mechanism um, built into how it operates. And so that impermanent loss mechanism is still there. 
Um, and now liquidity providers, um, when they're contributing money to, to, to Bancor in order to make markets with, we basically track um, exactly what their position should be worth um, at any point in the future. And so when they withdraw their, their money, if there's been any impermanent loss there, the protocol is aware of what it is and it will reimburse the user either in the TKN that they provided. So if you provided ETH, the protocol will first try to reimburse you in ETH. Um, and if it can't, because there's not enough ETH um, in the protocol to, to distribute, then it will um, reimburse you in BNT instead. And then you can have you can swap that BNT for ETH. So that's kind of the, the evolution that we're at now. And we're kind of you know sitting at the, the the edge of this frontier of okay, the AMM has come this far, we've figured out the impermanent loss issue. What are the other remaining things that we need to fix? Um, and coming back to our mission statement for version two, we think that those are still the opportunity cost of providing liquidity, right? If you're providing liquidity with your tokens, you're not doing anything else with them. That's a problem. But if projects have things that you can do with tokens other than provide liquidity. So for Ethereum, for example, you can stake it on Beacon Chain and be a part of the um, proof of stake consensus mechanism. For things like Chainlink, right, there's going to be a, a staking mechanism involved with that. Um, we have other tokens like um, like the the Mona token and um, iExec and ZeroChain and you know Graph. All of these tokens have some sort of crypto economic purpose for the, that's innate to their project. And if you're providing liquidity with them on Bancor at the moment, you're not participating in whatever the project designed that token to do. And so that's a big problem that we think that all AMMs face and something that is going to be addressed with version three. Um, and then the other thing with version three that we're trying to address is, is capital inefficiency. AMMs are, are really wonderful in so many ways, but one of the ways that they're, they're not great is provide um, a very large amount of, of liquidity in order to um, be able to provide traders with a competitive spot price, right? A, um, what, what we call slippage, which in traditional finance we would call the spread. Um, so if you've only got a very shallow pool, the, the effective spread on the price is quite large. So, you know, as we grow our pools deeper to hundreds of millions of dollars, the spread gets lower and lower. Um, but it also means that there's a large amount of sort of redundant capital in the pool that never really gets used. It's just kind of there to satisfy the algorithm and make sure that the, the pool can confidently quote a certain price without exhausting its resources. Um, there are more ways to do this. Um, in version two of Bancor, we introduced something called liquidity amplification, which was much, much more capital efficient, about 20 times more capital efficient. Um, and then we've also seen that idea get um, copied and iterated. Uh, my favorite iteration of it is actually Curves version two. Um, it has a it uses a, a similar concept, although in a much more sophisticated implementation. And then the other one that I think everyone is already familiar with is Uniswap's version three, where they've um, what they call concentrated liquidity. Also very, very close to the liquidity amplification that we had in um, in Bancor's version two. But instead of a, uh, a chain link price oracle determining where the, the bonding curve should be at any time, uh, Uniswap v3 instead asks users to fund different parts of the curve. So I think you know these are still the the open um, the open problems in AMM technology, and that's kind of the um, the direction that we're taking with our version three. There's going to be you know, there's a huge amount of features that version three is hoping to cover and it's going to be sort of a rolling release. So don't expect everything to sort of be out and ready on day one. There's an infrastructure upgrade followed by like a, a host of features that are rolling out over the, 
um, months and even the, the coming years, right, as we continue to develop out the protocol. Wow, Mark, that is a, that's a great answer for the evolution of Bancor. I had no idea there were so many uh, ups and downs and growing pains along the way. And um, I, you know, you mentioned Hayden's name. I, I didn't know it was possible, but I think he just blocked our space. Just by mentioning, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how that's possible, but I think he just is that, that true, really? No, oh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. By the way, I, I have nothing but respect for Hayden, right? Like, I've never said anything um, bad about him. I might have said some cheeky things. I know that he gets upset when um, when people talk about him and Bancor in the same sentence, but no, he credit where credit's due. He did an amazing job. Um, Uniswap is a, is a terrific product, and um, I think that the whole Uniswap team should be really proud of what they've achieved, and um, I don't want them to get the wrong idea. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of their, their product, and I'm, I'm inspired by, um, by them, as I think that they are inspired by us. I, I, I'm totally uh, kidding with you, but I think that, uh, you know, there's, it, my belief is uh, a high tide lifts or a tide lifts all boats. Um, but yeah, there's right. obviously a bunch of rivalries amongst different crypto projects, different tokens, and, you know, uh, where they're going, where they've been, are integrations real, things like that. Um, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to talk about one of the things that you mentioned there, and that's impermanent loss. And um, I don't, I'm not sure if you covered it, but what exactly is impermanent loss and, and how does how does prevent that? Yeah, um, so impermanent loss is, there's kind of a, a really hard to understand version, um, which involves things like geometric means, and there's a really easy to understand version. And it, let's go with the easy to understand version because they both mean exactly the same thing, honestly. Um, imagine you are, um, so like, imagine you've got a, like an old car or something, like a, a 1996, you know, Mercedes C230 or something like that. Um, and you look up the blue book value for this car and it says that it's worth, I don't know, thousand um, dollars. You then go to the, the classifieds for your, um, for your uh, local area and you list the car as, as you know, for $3,000, someone calls you up and says, I'm happy to pay that price. And so you sell your car for $3,000 and you're like, great. That's really, you know, I'm really happy for that. But then the, um, the updated blue book value the next week is $4,000. That means that if you had waited a week, you could have sold your car exactly the same thing that you had for $1,000 more. Um, but the irony is that the updated, the, the blue book update wouldn't have unless you sold your car. So you kind of have this catch 22. If you sold the car, the price of it would go up, right? It would, it would update to something because there's now more demand for that car being um, being registered by the people that are tracking it. Um, and if you didn't sell the car and tried to wait, the price wouldn't have moved. So it's really like between you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. If you sell now, someone else would be able to sell that same car at a profit later on. Um, and if you wait, the you won't be able to to, to get any advantages. And so this is kind of, uh, you know, one of our founders has called this the the coincidence of opposite wants. Um, and it, it's a problem that will never go away. It, it's something that AMMs have, have got, the, have built into them, right? In order for the price of the, an asset to appreciate, someone needs to be buying and selling it. And that's the whole point of having, you know, of having markets in the first place. So what impermanent loss is, is that difference between what, you uh, what the value of the thing is that you that you actually got so the three thousand dollars that you got for your car versus the four thousand dollars you could have got if you had waited a week 
we call that delta, that $1,000 difference, the impermanent loss. Why this matters, right, in, in DeFi, I think more than it matters in traditional finance, is that in traditional finance, market makers don't care. They're not emotionally attached. They're not personally invested in anything that they're buying and selling. Often, um, the things that they're buying and selling are provided to them by the exchange or by a government or by a corporation in order to make markets with. DeFi, the, it's the, the token holders themselves, the people that are personally attached to the project that are trying to make these markets. And so uh, I was on a call recently with someone and I said, you know, what's your favorite cryptocurrency right now? And they're like, okay, it's, it's Ethereum. And I was like, okay, great. What's the market price of Ethereum right now? I think at the time it was like 3000 500 or something. I was like, okay, will you let me buy your Ethereum from you for $3,500? He was like, no, that's insane. I'm expecting it to go to the moon, right? Maybe if you offer me $5,000 for it or something, I'll consider it. But the first thing I'm going to do is just buy more ETH with that. I'm like, okay, great. So have you ever considered the fact that the market maker on Coinbase is literally selling Ethereum at whatever, whatever the quoted price is, right? The only reason that they're going to sell that Ethereum to you is because they don't care about Ethereum. They never have. They never will. They only care about the transaction, right? So if Ethereum goes up in price, they don't care. They don't consider it a loss. They, they just consider it a part of, you know, that the, the, the they're um, participating in. Um, whereas for an AMM, it's the users themselves, the people that are passionate about Ethereum that are providing liquidity with it. And so they do get upset when um, you know, they're forced to sell Ethereum at $3,500 and then the price of Ethereum goes to $4,000 or $5,000 or whatever. Um, and so that, that is the impermanent loss. And it's, it's, a new, uh, it's almost a cultural phenomenon because in, in cryptocurrency, we care about the tokens that we, that we own. Um, whereas in traditional, the traditional finance world, the, the market makers don't care about them at all. Um, but yeah, I hope that that's kind of... Um, helped to clarify it a little bit. It's just the difference between um, holding a, a token in your wallet and doing nothing with it and then selling it at some point in the future or actively participating in, in making markets with it. Whatever, the, whatever that difference is, if participating in markets has been um, a negative impact, we call that impermanent loss. I want to jump in here. This Q&A is going fantastic. I mean, you're in-depth answers and information is not only helpful for someone like myself who has been heavily invested and involved uh, around the Bancor uh, protocol for a while, but I'm sure the listeners uh, as well. And speaking of the listeners, if you are in the audience right now and you'd like to ask a question, you can say question. We'll bring you up on stage a little bit later, uh, or you can also send a direct message to myself or Danny and we can ask the question for you. But with that said, I wanted to touch on thing, Mark, that we, uh, we just kind of glossed over, and it's actually a two-part. One, we're talking about Uniswap, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if Bancor has an official uh, answer or uh, statement about what we've seen with the SEC probing Uniswap labs. Is there anything that Bancor can comment on that? I mean, are, is that reached out to, I mean, has the SEC uh, reached out? What's the situation from your perspective? No, I, the SEC hasn't and wouldn't uh, reach out to Bancor because... Um, the so Bancor is, is set up um, as a Swiss nonprofit, and so you know the the project in uh, talking to the Swiss regulator um, since 2017, right? We're, we're not um, you know this isn't like the, the first time that Bancor has had um, a brush with um, with you know regulatory issues or something. Um, 
So yeah, the, the SEC hasn't reached out to us, although we are expecting eventually that we will be talking to um, you know, law firms in the, in the United States to kind of get clarity on what's happening over there. But the reason why the SEC is reaching out to Uniswap in particular is because it's, um, it's wholly uh, established within the United States. And so their interactions with, you know, with United States regulatory um, affairs is going to be much, much more severe than, than is Bancor's. But having said that, you know, we do make, we've always made an effort to remain regulatory compliant. Um, up until um, very recently, um, we actually had to block um, IP addresses from the United States until a, um, a court case um, was settled, um, I think, at the, at the end of last year in New York. So, yeah, we, you know, it's not Bancor is suddenly having to contend with regulatory practices for the first time since its ICO. We've been dealing with it the whole time. Um, so, no, I, we, ha we aren't talking to the SEC directly, but I expect that we will talk to them eventually. Um, but I think that the conversation that we have with them is going to be very different from the conversation that Uniswap is having with them. Secondarily, and, and you sort of talked about it a little bit just now and, and, and so far in the conversation, we go back, you know, Bancor, that's our OG DEX. That's where we started an ICO 2017. What's your response to anyone that's maybe new or thinking, why is this different? Why is it different in 2021 as opposed to what we saw in 2017, where everything goes up and then, uh, you know, and, and look, bust. And now we're back. It's four years later. You know, people have their own thoughts and they come in. Now they go, why is it still early for us? As we've talked about earlier in this conversation. I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah. So I'd, I'd say that back in the, you know, the ICO era was very much that, you know, that overly part of the, the Gartner hype cycle, because we'd really just been introduced to the first time to, to smart contracts and what they what they might be able to do. The word DeFi hadn't even been coined yet, right? Even though, uh, you know, you could always classify what Bancor was doing as being decentralized finance or some version of decentralized finance. We didn't have a, a word for it and it wasn't really a, its own field yet. In 2020 and 2021, DeFi became not just like, you know, a, a small collection of protocols or a single protocol. It wasn't just Bancor and, and Maker DAO anymore. It was, you know, Aave and Uniswap and SushiSwap. And all of a sudden these, um, you know, financial primitives are appearing on other blockchains. And the whole thing altogether has attracted a huge amount of interest from like the regular world. It's no longer just a bunch of, you know, nerdy kids on the internet trying to do something interesting. Um, it's now like full, you know, organizations and, um, you know, very, very high net worth individuals that are taking an interest in this and thinking that it can, you know, it might actually be able to solve problems that the traditional finance has. So in terms of like being too early or, you know, in, sorry, in, in terms of being too early, um, the ICO definitely was a, the too early phase. That was the, the world isn't really ready for this. All you've got is the idea. The technology isn't really tried and proven yet. In 2021, the technology is kind of seasoned a little bit. Right, the, the the developments that have been made, the the quality of the understanding, the amount of users on the blockchain, just the the sheer amount of TVL that um, that Ethereum has on it now, it certainly suggests that um, we're gathering the momentum for something that's going to be, you know, positively world changing. 
Um, I can say from, you know, I, we've mentioned this one on Bancor Community Calls, so I'm pretty confident that this isn't, you know, revealing secrets or anything. Um, but Bancor has been discussing with banks now for a very long time um, how they can be um, involved in, in staking opportunities on, on Bancor. Um, we speak to, uh, there's a collection of about 16 Swiss banks that now um, support uh, direct, uh, support, um, you know, direct cryptocurrency transactions on their internet banking, you know, um, UI that uses the bank or, that uses the bank or smart contracts in the background. Um, we also speak to, you know, other institutional players that are really interested in something like a KYC version of, of Bancor, where, um, you know, something like what Ave Pro is doing. And, you know, we've also heard um, Sushi wants to do something like this. I think that there will be, you know, some sort of uh, growing, teething, you know, phenomenon as the regulators start to, um, you know, I, I want to say dictate or lay down the law or anything, but as they start to try and guide us back towards something that's going to be more digestible, more palatable for the regular financial world. But once that happens, I promise you, like, that the billions of dollars that we've got locked up in, on DeFi today is going to look like nothing at all compared to what we can actually get done with it. One of the things that I was looking at is, you know, what is actually going to, um, you know, if DeFi is to service the the needs of the of the financial world, what are the types of products that that those players really want to use? Because they're not coming to DeFi to um, you know to swap Bitcoin for Chainlink. They're not coming to DeFi to you know to just buy ETH and hold it. They're looking for actual you know mechanisms that will allow them to, for example, transfer risk. So like the the alternative risk transfer instrument market is is multi trillion. Um, they're also looking for really fast uh, loan systems. So, for example, the, the the London Interbank Overnight Loan System is something that absolutely, I think, will be um, moved onto blockchains. It could be Ethereum. It might not be. It might be something uh, like a private blockchain. Um, but DeFi and the, the products that DeFi has means that these protocols like Bancor, like, like you know, Uniswap, like Aave, they will start probably bleeding over onto these private blockchains in order to um, to facilitate uh, these kinds of, you know, huge transactions. And um, yeah, because none of that has happened yet, right? Because banks are still literally calling each other on the phone, right? Or sending each other emails to work out um, what kind of exchange rates they're likely to get, right? Because we still have the LIBOR reporting system. All of these things suggest that DeFi has not even yet fully arrived. Right. It's basically at the end of proof of concept phase. Um, it's shown that it has the ability to, um, you know, to, to harbor vast amounts of, of capital and then use that capital to achieve financial goals at a benefit to the people that are using it. And so what we have is like the, the possible prototype prior to like a launch of, of DeFi um, and I think, yeah, in the in the sense of being still early, until you know banks are actually using blockchains on a daily basis to do stuff, until governments are actually consulting the blockchain record to determine if banks are doing something shady, um, we haven't. You know, we'll we will we will always be in that position of being able to say that we're early until these until these things have happened, and even once these things have happened. You then have the you're then in the position of being able to speculate on what the growth will be, right? So we're still pre-adoption, right? It doesn't matter how many users, um, you know, Ethereum and DeFi end up with. It's really that onboarding of the the world's financial systems 
um, that we're waiting for. And once that's happened, I still think there's a long, uh, a long way to um, a, a lot of growth to to look forward to after that. So to to follow that up, and you mentioned actually my question sort of in your answer when you mentioned Ave Pro, I was going to ask about Bancor and the banking situation. But you you so you described that sw- talking to Swiss banks, banks using Bancor. What's the time frame uh, from a best guess in your estimation? Uh, I mean, so it, honestly, part some of it's some of these banks were already. Um, it really comes down to what you know, which part of the world that these banks are are operating in. So places like Switzerland are really great because there's um, this uh, sort of underlying assumption that mostly everything's kind of private, and so things like uh, anonymity um, in in Switzerland really isn't such a big issue. Whereas in the United States, anonymity is like the the exact opposite of what the regulator wants to respect. Um, and so there there will have to be you know something happening there. Um, but it's not really up to Bancor or even Aave or anyone else to um, to to decide when it's ready. We can always kind of create these, you know, walled gardens and, um, you know, KYC private platforms for, um, for these kinds of um, institutional players. But even then, the, it, they are going to wait for the, the green light from the regulator before they, they, they actually use it. Um, and yeah, so I think that time frame it's impossible for me to speculate on. I think though it will be inside of a year. Um, I expect because you know it's not the regulators have sort of raised the um, you know raised a flag for what's happening in DeFi or, or blockchains as being of interest to them. Um, I think that they've been kind of quietly working away on stuff. Um, behind the scenes for the last couple of years. And now they're kind of, you know, gathering up momentum and, and are ready to start making decisions. Um, but I think that we should sort of start welcoming these decisions. I don't think that they're going to be necessarily bad. I don't think that they're going to, you know, the regulators don't want to end DeFi. They love it. Um, and as I pointed out before, things like um, being able to consult um, uh, the blockchain to see if um, if banks or insurance companies or something are doing anything that they shouldn't is something that is, um, that's already lacking from, um, the, the current system, right? That the trustlessness and transparency of, of DeFi actually plays right into what some regulators have been asking for, for a really long time, which is to see the books on blockchains. You don't really have to worry about that. The books are, are, are public, um, knowledge. So. I think that they will start making those decisions. Um, I'm going to say by this time next year, we'll have a lot more regulatory clarity. And then you'll start to see Bancor and everyone else in DeFi um, starting to immediately roll out um, products that are in line with those regulatory decisions. But until then, everything is really just a guess. Even Aave Pro is just a guess. We have no idea if that's going to be compliant for for much longer. Um, And so, you know, it's um, it's really impossible to say. I don't want to speculate too much because I'm worried about being quoted on this later. But yeah, <laughs> if, if anyone wants to quote on how I answered this, it's let's wait and see. I think that the regulators will act a little bit faster than what many people expect. I'm going to give it something like 12 months that we will start to see some regulatory clarity on what we're supposed to be doing. And I also think that it won't be bearish news. I think that it's going to be mostly welcomed by um, the, the cryptocurrency community because they are going to want to see their technology getting adopted, you know, on a much larger scale. Um, and I also think that um, the the sorts of things that the regulator is going to be asking for will be pretty tame. 
I don't think it's going to be, you know, a, a catastrophic, you know, doxing system or something like that. I think it will feel more or less the same for users as it does now. But let's wait and see. Maybe the SEC is feeling a little trigger happy or something. But remember, these are still democratic um, authorities. If we have a problem with it um, within your jurisdiction, you can still lobby, right, to, to have things changed if you don't like the way things are going. So, you know, remain vocal. Remember to talk to your representatives and things. Um, as the um, as these policies are being developed, and I think that we'll end up with a a solution that that is um, amenable to to everyone's wants. That's I, I honestly believe that. Okay, fair enough. I'm not not going to hold you to any you know predictions or or speculation. Uh, but we appreciate your comments on that. I want to just touch on one final question uh, before I toss it back to Danny to sort of dive into the you know actual protocol. And this is just a general question I think I, I recognize uh, frequently. When you get onboarding of, let's say, crypto enthusiasts, you onboard them, right? They're new. They sort of think this DeFi concept seems too advanced. It's too hard. Um, and then the, you know they hear about CFI and centralized finance. What's your take on sort of the breakdown on on centralized finance sites against decentralized finance sites and sort of how it it is to sort of make it easier for yeah. people to get to DeFi because DeFi is, you know, listen, I come from a traditional finance background, have years of experience. Not everyone has that. It can be scary. So, I mean, that's it's clearly a challenge to get people in. What's your breakdown of the sort of the CFI versus DeFi and how you get more people to come over? Yeah. They're right. It sucks, honestly. I, <laughs> DeFi sucks right now. Uh, it, it is too complicated. Um, if the, the goal is mass adoption, right? We want it to be as simple and as um, as safe as you know, starting a, a, an account with a with your bank and moving money around that way, right? The the era that we're living in, where um, we expect everyone to be, you know. Um, super up to date on you know owning their own hardware wallet and under, you know being able to identify what is a, a scammy project and you know what things that they, they should and shouldn't do it's really impossible i i know people good smart people um that have you know fallen victim to some of these you know rug pull exploits um that have occurred especially on bsc just it happens there a lot but um also with you know things that weren't scams or deliberate rug pulls but were just um, you know the, the product of, of bad um, economic design. Things like um, Titan Finance on, on Polygon, which was a really exciting um, you know stablecoin project, um, and you know certainly had a huge amount of community support, um, but had this um, sort of self-sacrificing economic uh, loophole built into it that was just really hard to notice, and you, no one who um, was you know harmed by um, by that uh, particular opportunity, um, I, I think you know you, you can't hold them responsible for it. it, it all of the best minds at the time um, were looking at it and saw that coming, right? And so, if you've got the entire industry notice, like paying attention to one particular protocol, and no one being able to call the the exploit until it finally happens, means that you know we're, we're still in that um, that phase of it being too too difficult, too complicated. Um, too um, too unsafe, I think, for for regular people to start using in a in a predictable way. I like to think that things like like Bancor are you know old enough and sort of battle hardened enough um, with a, a you know a long enough history that um, people can feel more at home, like more uh, more safe 
participating on, on these types of platforms. Things like MakerDAO as well, right? Some of the really, the old veterans of DeFi, the longer it's been around, the less likely it is to be exploited um, at, at any time in the future. But new users don't know that, right? There's no, um, there's no like trust metric for when you show up at a protocol that tells you how likely it is to that there's going to be an issue and that you might lose money on it. Um, so all, all of that is a, a big problem. I also think it's a big problem that for that DeFi is no longer just a, an Ethereum um, an Ethereum fund, but is also now multi-chain, right? So we've got all of the layer two scaling solutions that are going to have it. We've got um, a pretty significant DeFi influence on on Avalanche right now. Certainly Solana. Um, BSC, all of these chains. And in order to use these different DeFi products on different chains, you have to learn how to sort of connect your address up to these different things and move funds around between bridges and all of that kind of stuff. That's another layer of complexity that, you know, your regular user just doesn't want to be, you know, um, exposed to. They want to be able to just sit down at their computer, know what, you know, know that they can complete the action of participating in whatever DeFi protocol they want very quickly and very inexpensively, which is another issue, right? Gas fees is a, a, a huge um, a huge blocker. So at the end of the day, I think when DeFi has fully arrived, right? When we can say that great, you know, we've managed to achieve, we've finished building the thing that we wanted to do and now we can, you know, continue to advance or whatever. But, you know, when the prototype is actually ready, I would say that new users, one, won't even really be aware what blockchain they're using right? It, it, certainly they would have the ability to investigate that and they, that answer should be very low, um, you know, very low hanging that if you, you know, query it, it'll say that the protocol they're using is on Polygon or the protocol you're using is on Solana or whatever. But the transition between using the same protocol or different protocols on different chains shouldn't really require the user to take any additional actions. I, I, I don't think that that's too much to ask. Um, so there's, there's that component of it. And then the other component of it is that we need there to be some way, prefer preferably something self-generated, like a self-policing, um, like DeFi, I don't want to say authority, but like an algorithm or something that knows how, how likely it is that a, a protocol is going to be protected against antagonists, I think is probably the best way to say it. I don't want to say necessarily that it would be exploited or hacked or, you know, subject to a rug pull scam or something like that, because that's not even what I mean. What I mean is if you're participating in a, a brand new product that's maybe um, doing something, you know, super capital efficient with, you know, with your funds and is reporting the super high APY, that the the risk that you take on by doing that right if you are for example buying uh, buying someone else's risk from an insurance product or something like that that be you know front and foremost so that people know what they're um, what they're actually exposing themselves to which at the moment i really don't think is the case for the, there's a, a new um insurance product that i'm really interested in i'm not going to mention them by name because it i'm about to say something critical of them um, but basically, it is a, um, a slightly a slightly simpler version of something like Nexus Mutual in the sense that there's no um, like KYC compliance issues. It's, it's fully decentralized. What you do there is you provide stablecoin liquidity in order to underwrite the insurance risk of, of um, you know, different, um, different protocols. And when I was there investigating, I was like, you know, if I, if I didn't have the knowledge that I have now, 
and I was just a, a regular user, maybe, you know, uh, a naive 18-year-old or something discovering DeFi for the first time, all I would see when I arrive at this page is that if I put my tokens here, then I'm going to earn this, you know, percent yield. And it's not immediately clear to me that if something goes wrong, right, if the insurance policy that I am staking against has a claim associated with it, that I'm going to lose my money, that I'm effectively placing a bet that this insurance policy doesn't pay out. Um, and I think that that kind of um, transparent users, it needs to come forward. And I have a feeling that this is the kind of thing that regulators are actually going to be paying attention to more than anything else. So we'll see. I think that there's a lot that needs to happen. The, you know, the, the technological know-how, the, the technological competency of users, um, that expectation needs to come way down. Um, the ability to use any blockchain you want without knowing which blockchain it is necessarily, that needs to, um, that's a prerequisite, I think, for mass adoption. And also the safety, the, the confidence that you have participating in these um, DeFi technologies, that needs to come way up. That's, that's kind of how I see everything um, evolving over there. I wanted to, um, to drive back into um, Bancor specifically. So there's a lot of projects, obviously, that, that issue tokens. Maybe it's to raise funds. Uh, maybe it's to help the protocol. Uh, maybe it's to, to build the overall infrastructure of the project. What's the purpose of the, BN, uh, of the BNT token specifically for Bancor? Yeah. So... Um... The BNT token is a little different, I think, to the the status quo, and it was you know, it was designed to have specific properties. And so let's let's just talk a little bit about what these these things are. Um, being the BNT token, it really predates the 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 DAO, um, like the explosion of DAOs. And so the the BNT token, we wanted to make sure that during the ICO launch, that it would not satisfy. It would like um, be demonstrably not a security right and this is you can understand why you know um, why this was so important for for the ico because projects that didn't pay attention to um to that particular regulatory requirement are now you know in these unending legal battles and i again i won't um, mention them by name i'm sure people on the call already know um, you know, the most prominent cases of this but the bnt token in order to be um not a security which basically means something that you buy for the sole purpose of it appreciating in value because some third party is, you know, um, is distributing value to it. What it needed to be was something that require in order to perform an activity. And so the BNT token was the this liquidity token that is required by the protocol in order to support liquidity for other assets. At the time when BNT was first released, it was assumed that um, all of the, the liquidity pools on Bancor would still be regular double-sided liquidity pools. And that means that you buy BNT in order to uh, combine it with something like Ethereum or you know, Chainlink or Rat Bitcoin or whatever you want um, in order to contribute it. And that, that, you know, that natural demand for BNT in order to you know, create the, these markets um, would be the thing that you know people could, if they if they wanted to, that they could speculate on. But that doesn't mean that BNT is a speculative asset. It, it's required by the protocol in order to perform its function. With the rise of of DAOs, um, we want we we knew that we wanted to have a DAO. Um, we for for so many reasons, right? It, it's such a positive thing to bring to to a project. But 
we didn't want to have the same sort of, um, you know, governance mechanism that a lot of other projects have. So for those who, who not, might not be super familiar with the, um, the current status quo in DeFi, um, especially for other AMM protocols, things like Uniswap, the Uni token is a pure governance token. Right, it, it doesn't um, accrue value to itself. It doesn't um, have, you know, it doesn't distribute fees from the the Uniswap project to that token. It is just used to influence the um, the uh, you know the, the health and uh, execution of of that. I should say that the Uniswap token is probably not considered a security in that regard as well, because there is no direct transfer of value from the protocol to the token. Um, for something like Sushi, it probably is a security in the sense that when um, when trades are performed on the Sushi network, there is a, a fee confiscation event that is then distributed back to ex-Sushi stakers. And so that is very much um, sort of fits within that description of, of a security, which is neither here nor there. I'm not saying that's a, a bad thing or, or a good thing. It just means that eventually um, for Sushi to become regulatory compliant, they'll probably need to commit to a reporting process um, with the regulator. Um, and then for things like Balancer, um, they have, you know, they also have a, go a governance token where, you know, you just, you know, um, you just vote on issues affecting that, that ecosystem. The problem with these governance tokens in general is that there's no requirement that the people that hold them should have anything at stake if a bad decision is made. So for example, if you are an eccentric billionaire, for example, and you want to, um, you know, you, you decide that it's time for, for Uniswap to rebrand, right? And instead of a unicorn, it should have a dragon as its logo or something, right? I'm, I'm just choosing something ridiculous, but you can substitute this scenario with anything else that you think might have more dramatic financial consequences. I'm just trying to deliberately avoid um, saying anything like this in, in a public call. So let's just go with changing the Uniswap logo. Um, if you really want it to be a dragon, you could just buy a very, very large amount of Uniswap tokens and then uh, use those Uniswap tokens to, um, to launch a proposal and then vote on that proposal with your, you know, with the tokens that you've accumulated in order to uh, pass it through the DAO process. And now the, the Uniswap logo has to change from a, from a unicorn to a dragon. Um, after that process is done, you can then just sell all of your um, all of your Uniswap tokens back to the market. And so you've basically just kind of borrowed, you know, money from your from yourself, from your future self, in order to affect a change in a protocol that you don't actually have a stake in. Um, this is this this is sort of a, a an underlying problem with a, a lot of DAOs throughout DeFi, which is that there is no intrinsic link between the people that are making decisions and the um, the fact that they have something at stake in that protocol. Bancor is very very different. When you've got the BNT token, which like I said before, is this the the purely utilitarian um, component of of the network. When you stake it in order to support liquidity, which is an essential function of, of the protocol, it generates VBNT, which is kind of like a, um, a receipt of deposit for the BNT that you've provided. That VB is um, your voting right. And so after you've staked your BNT, you get the VBNT and you can then stake that in a separate governance contract. And you then use that to govern the, you know, the, the protocol's um, features. And this is super important for Bancor because almost everything that we do requires DAO approval and has potentially, um, you know, dramatic 
uh, economic and financial consequences. So things like, you know, what pools should have liquidity mining programs, which tokens should we um, initiate into, into whitelisting and protect users from a permanent loss? Um, what should the pool fee be on each specific pool? All of these things require um, community involvement. And so as a result, we've become one of the most active DAOs, I think, in, in DeFi, second only to make a DAO in terms of proposals passed and voted on um, per day. So that VBNT token is interesting because the only way to get it, or the only way to get a lot of it, is to actually stake BNT in the protocol, which means that you have some of your capital inside the system that you are now governing. Um, and in order to get your capital out of the system, you need to relinquish that VBNT back to the protocol before you withdraw. And that is key. It means that everyone that is voting in, um, well, the, the overwhelming majority of people that are voting in, um, in the, the bank or DAO have something at stake. They have something to risk if they make a bad decision. And that means one is economically incentivized to try and make the best decision. And uh, I think this is unique um, for, for the bank or DAO. So really these, these two tokens, BNT being the pure, uh, purely utilitarian token, and then VBNT being a pure governance token with no, um, you know, with no speculative value at all really, except for the fact that you need it to, um, to withdraw your BNT at the end of the day. Um, it means that there's this very, very clear um, line in the sand between what's happening on the protocol and what is considered a security, which is nice. Um, and this is well informed, you know, way back from the ICO era and also all the way up until the, like I said, um, the court cases that were settled, um, well, not, not even settled, but the, the, the court cases that were dismissed from the New York courts um, at, the end of, at the end of 2020, that states quite clearly that the BNT and VBNT aren't, um, aren't securities. And so we're not um, encroaching on any securitization laws, thankfully. Um, but also as a, not as even as a consequence, but as kind of a, a separate design feature, apart from the, the regulatory stuff, is that you can be confident that what the bank or DAO does is always in its best interest, right? That we rarely um, are going to be suspicious of someone trying to push through policy that might deliberately harm the protocol. Because if they were to, uh, to try something like that, they, own the, you know, they risk losing their own money in the process. So that's really the the two bank or tokens and, and how they operate. It's fascinating, Mark. I really appreciate that uh, that in depth answer there. Um, uh, I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about the relationship with Chainlink and how how it could possibly evolve. Um, yeah. Obviously, you use uh, uh, price feed oracles on uh, on Bancor's ne Bancor network, um, but I think it it seems that it's going to evolve to a closer relationship. Um, yeah. And I know you have uh, the Bancor network or Bancor protocol now has uh, bridges. So uh, with Chainlink developing their new CCIP, the uh, cross-chain interoperability protocol, uh, will there be an incorporation of, of CCIP into Bancor? And uh, I don't want to, um, I can't give away too much yet. One, because um, a lot of this stuff is still pretty early and we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Um, but also because Bancor also has its own, um, I think that we could have been the first. I'm not really sure. Let's say that we were. <laughs> it's kind of on brand. But, let's go um, with it. <laughs> let's go with it. Um, but yeah, we, we, I think we were the, uh, we did a, a cross-chain version of, of Bancor protocol really early on. Um, we had... Um, uh, we, I think, still have and still maintain a version of the Bancor protocol on EOS, right? And I, this also speaks to sort of our, um, you know, 
let, let's say earned uh, reluctance or maybe not reluctance, but caution when we're approaching new chains is that Bancor is old enough that we now see this, you know, explosion of new chains as being sort of the second wave of them. There was once upon a time where EOS was considered the Ethereum killer and, you know, all of its features and everything that it could do would render Ethereum useless. And all, you know, it's amazing to see that the vocabulary that was used to, um, to advertise EOS back in the day, it's kind of borrowed word for word now to, to advertise things like, you know, Solana and, and BSC and things like that. That's not to say that Solana and all of these other competing layer one solutions won't be successful, because I think that they will. Um, but we also know that probably not all of them will be. And so we have this kind of more cautious approach to it. But having said all of that, yeah, we, we have our own cross-chain implementation. Um, we have so uh, an existing um, bridge to EOS called BankRx. Um, we have a, a bridge to, to Polkadot that's not really doing anything right now. And um, our collaboration with Liquid Apps means that we can um, create similar bridges to any, any blockchain that we want. Um, don't necessarily need um, uh, the Chainlink CCPI to, to help us do that. Um, what we will be using um, Chainlink for, I think, um, is, yeah, like you said, more of the, the price fee type stuff. But Chainlink's technological offering is also maturing in quite a profound way. Um, they've got a, a Keeper technology that's going to be competing with things like um, Rook Keeper DAO, and um, you know a, a bunch of other services as well that we think are going to be sort of a, a part of the fundamental fabric of, of DeFi into the future. And so whether or not it's you know just keepers or or or, or just their cross chain implementation technology or just price feed stuff, it's really too early to to, to tell you because we need to wait for both of these things to to sort of come to fruition. Um, but you know, rest assured, whatever whatever Chainlink is is doing well, um, Bancor is planning to to use. Wow! Anytime you bring up uh, the fans are happy, people are happy. <laughs> we, know that we we know the frogs. We're friends. Chainlink loves Bancor. We saw you tease uh, at SmartCon V3, and I want to dive into V3 quickly in a second. But I have a question for you, Mark, about VBNT. Yeah. You talked about it, and this is something that I think can be confusing no matter how educated or how deep you are into this. Can you sort of explain possibly in a simple manner when you say, when you guys put out tweets and you say uh, via BNT, locked forever, right. how does that actually affect the users or the BNT token? I mean, when you lock it forever, great, but like, can you break that down for someone that's like, what does that actually mean? Yeah, yeah. So this, it's, so Bank or, the BNT token has a very complicated um like tokenomics model um to how we provide impermanent loss protection so and that's something I, i'm not sure i answered completely when you asked it to me so we i described what impermanent loss is but i don't i don't think i described how we um how we address it so the the short version is that we keep track of exactly what users funds are so each user every time you make a deposit on bank or at the moment um, you get a, a separate entry in the blockchain. And so that allows the protocol to, to calculate precisely what your, um, you know, what funds are due, uh, are, you know, what sort of compensation you should be awarded at the time that you withdraw. And the first thing that it's going to do is it's going to check, okay, how many, how many tokens are in the pool? And if there's um, enough to compensate you for loss, it will just tokens. And what I mean by that is that there's this, this complicated um, interplay of 
users um, own pool tokens and the protocols pool tokens in the background that you don't really see. Um, but basically there's always this kind of um, float of both TKN and BNT that the protocol can use to give users at the time that they withdraw. Basically the protocol never takes anything for itself. It's just there to support you, the user. Um, so if, if, if it's got its own profits, it will give them to you um, in order to, um, to refund your impairment loss. However, if it, it, it doesn't have enough profits for you, right? Or if, you know, giving you TKN is gonna mean um, taking TKN from other users, it will stop. And instead it will say, okay, I'm gonna create BNT for you, give you that BNT instead, equal in value to whatever your impermanent loss was. And then it's up to the user to decide if they're gonna keep that BNT or if they're gonna swap it back for TKN. And so um, this causes a, um, a, an actual economic inflationary pressure, selling pressure on the BNT token. It's quite minor com compared to the overall BNT supply. I mean, thankfully we've got one of the most liquid resources in all of cryptocurrency. Um, you know, paired against you know um, all of the all of the different assets inside all of its pools, um, where eighty percent of you know uh, BNT supply is is currently in those kinds of um, actively price quoted situations. So it's, it is very nice, and it means that um, if someone is going to be reimbursed in BNT, that when they swap it, the often that the price impact is is negligible compared to what market makers are doing on on Coinbase or Binance or something like that. But it's still there, and over long periods of time, it means that the the BNT token might devalue. Um, and you know, while that's not certain, it's still something that we need to be cautious of. We we don't want to um, accidentally wander into a um, into a situation where things like hyperinflation are, are going to you know, cause the, the project to become unsustainable. And so what we really need is something like what I call a pressure release valve. We need some way for if we're minting BNT to, to achieve a certain, um, uh, you know, a certain objective, then we need a way to sort of counterbalance that minting with a deflationary force somewhere else. And it's very different to um, some of the deflation that you hear spoken about in, um, in other cryptocurrency projects where the idea is that driving scarcity or something to a, to a resource is somehow going to increase its value. It's very different to that. It's actually just the, um, the counteracting mechanism that causes the BNT supply to stabilize or to, to economically stabilize. The actual contract supply of BNT can always increase because the protocol makes what's called co-investments when it's um, supporting new liquidity to a pool. But this doesn't actually um, cause selling pressure, so it's, it's, it's price neutral. The price negative stuff is the, the thing that we need to be cautious of, not because you know, it's so important that the BNT you know, token continue to, to increase in price, but because of the way that the, um, the relationship of the BNT price to the price of everything else in its protocol means it's something that we can't ignore, right? It, it is a market making protocol and so you can't ignore price. So this um, so this was one of the problems that the V2.1 started with is that um, there, you know, we have this perfectly balanced um, system for co-investment. That means that we can mint as much BNT into the pools as we want because we burn it all again when users withdraw. That's not a problem. But the, um, the minting BNT to give to users um, as recent it is slightly inflationary and over very, very long periods of time, right? Like, you know, the protocol is supposed to survive for, for decades, centuries, however long we wanted to, arbitrary long periods of time, um, that will have a measurable impact. And so that needs to be counteracted. Having realized that, 
what we designed was what we call the Bancorp Vortex. And this basically means that if you have VBNT, you can swap it against a liquidity pool for any other asset in the network. And then um, the Bancorp protocol itself will use a small amount of, um, of revenues to buy VBNT back and destroy it. And so let's look at just the highest possible level of what this means for the protocol. When a user provides BNT to any liquidity pool, you can think of it as they were actually just burning their BNT. It kind of has the same effect. The, um, what actually happens on the contract level is that the, the protocol withdraws its own BNT um, and burns that BNT so that the user's BNT can be accepted in place. But that's a completely redundant um, representation um, of just saying that the user's BNT is, um, is burned on deposit and replaced with VBNT in a one-to-one -one rate. And so that means that the VBNT really becomes the BNT that the, the user added. And so when they swap it against the pool, the user is, is ending back at a position where they don't have any BNT at all, except for the VBNT that they've traded into the pool. And so as the protocol buys that VBNT out of the pool and then destroys it, they're effectively repaying this, this debt position that the user took when they swapped it out. And then by burning it, it actually permanently reduces the BNT circulating supply. And I mean that in the real sense, right? The actual BNT that's available in users' wallets and on markets to, um, to affect price discovery. So the burning of VBNT, it is burning BNT. It's exactly the same thing. And if the rate of VBNT burning is um, a, a significant proportion of the BNT minting that occurs due to impermanent loss protection, then the whole system is in a, a, a a state of um, of sustainability, and thankfully, you know, we're well within that margin. It doesn't need to be exactly one to one, um, but yeah, it, as long as both of these things are are, are competing for um, inflating and deflating the BNT supply, then the whole thing should just kind of you know progress on in its regular sort of um, price discovery mode, and the selling pressure won't um, won't affect it too much. So that's really that's really how it works. It's a it's a pressure release valve. It's a, a counterbalance. It's the you know the other side of the scale that keeps the protocol healthy, so that we can mint BNT when we need to um, compensate users for their IL, while at the same time not having to worry about things like you know hyperinflation and, and other things. That's a nice breakdown, and uh, that's definitely the uh, pressure release valve. Uh, notation on that. I want to just reiterate for anyone that's joining us now or has uh, had a question that you want answered. I'm going to ask a user question right now, but I also want to let you know as we're starting to run short on time that if you do have a question and you want to come up on stage and ask, we'll be able to take a couple at the end. Just request uh, or send me a message. And I want to quickly just switch gears before we get into the conversation around and see how much Mark will devolve, uh, divulge to us. Um, with a user question from AJ Shane 3 who asks, Mark, he says, NFTs are all the rage and the metaverse is here. Is Bancorp planning on getting involved into either space at any capacity? If so, how? It's a really terrific question. And, you know, I agree that NFTs are going to be a really amount of DeFi forever. Um, I'm not sure exactly what flavor of NFTs. I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced, and that's not to say that I'm, you know, uh, I'm convinced of the opposite, right? I, to say that I'm not convinced of something just means that I don't know if something's true. Um, but I think that the, at the moment, NFTs is very limited, right? It's all of uh, this like digital artwork and this narrative of, of city and, um, 
you know, certain features being more desirable than other features kind of driving the value of stuff. Um, but it is, you know, it, it does have problems. Um, there are things like the, the price discovery of NFTs is intrinsically linked to the currency from which it was generated. So for example, you generate a, a CryptoPunk with, with Ethereum, then you are hoping to be able to, um, you know, if you're selling that CryptoPunk at some point in the future, it's for more Ethereum. And that means that the CryptoPunk really is kind of just a, a derivative of the Ethereum price. Um, you have, uh, you know, if someone wanted to offer you some amount of dollars for it, you would be first converting it back into Ethereum to make sure that your, um, you know, that the transaction is profitable for you. And that's kind of unacceptable for not just NFTs as they currently are. I think, it, you know, having Ethereum be the base um, currency through which the value of NFTs is represented is, is fine for now. But more complex financial instruments have nothing to do with digital artwork or artwork at all. Right, there are going to be um, things that maybe should not or cannot be represented as as a certain amount of Ethereum being um, purchased or or sold at some point in time, and I think that that's where Bancor is likely to spend some of their efforts. At the moment, we've you know we've got other priorities, things like like V three, and so we're not like laser focused or anything on on NFTs but we are spending some time thinking about it. And that's kind of where my mind is at, is what are the problems currently facing NFTs and how can those problems be resolved? Um, there are some answers to this. So for example, the, the NFT liquidity issue is, is massive. And I think probably we shouldn't try to deal with that in a way. I think that one of the, if you want something that's liquid and fungible, just use an ESC20 contract. NFTs are kind of, they're supposed to be illiquid. One of the advantages of having an illiquid asset is that the holder gets to decide the price, right? Things like OpenSea with the auction-based system means that if you are, you know, if you want to sell your CryptoPunk for a trillion dollars, you are absolutely entitled to go and try and sell it for a trillion dollars. Um, there's a liquidity pool for, for CryptoPunks then it's like the market itself is going to determine the price of the thing that you have. And for a lot of, uh, a lot of people in the NFT community, I think that that is a disgusting idea, right? They, they know what their NFT is worth to them. And if you want to pry their NFT from their hands, um, they have a price for that and it should be up to them to decide that price. So I don't think that necessarily things like bonding curves or, or AMMs in general are the, the solution that NFTs need, but I think that it can be it, that AMMs can service the underlying liquid resource that um, that NFT juiced with. So what I would really like to see is the idea that, and uh, you know, we started to see OpenSea develop this in a you know, let's say a, a bit ham-fisted way. Um, I'd like to see something a little bit more fundamental built in at the base layer. But the idea that you can generate NFTs with any current it doesn't have to be Ethereum. It doesn't have to be swapped to Ethereum at any stage. You can, you know, you pay the gas fee for minting the CryptoPunk, but then the actual minting fee is paid in whatever the user wants to pay it with. Um, and that will mean that the actual price discovery part of the NFT is no longer connected to any one specific currency. Um, and I think that that's going to be really, really important when we start to move out of digital artwork and start, you know, trying to bring in other non-fungible resources, things like like real estate, right? Or like the car example that I brought up earlier. These things are, are, are semi-non-fungible things. And we don't necessarily want the price of houses, the prices of real estate to be tied to the price of, of Ethereum, right? Otherwise, 
you know, I, I think we're all convinced that Ethereum is going to be hitting uh, new all-time highs at, at some point in the future, whenever that is. And if it is doing so, if we've somehow tokenized real estate by that point into NFTs, like, can you imagine how devastating it would be for the world economy if the real estate went up from here at the same rate that Ethereum did? You know, it, it would just kind of defeat the purpose. So these are the kinds of the problems that I'm thinking about. It's not about how to make a, you know, a, a better uh, exchange or something for, for NFTs. I'm trying to think about, okay, let's take the NFT for what it is and then figure out all of the things that are economically broken with it. They're all the things that, you know, what are its financial shortcomings? And let's address that. And I think that Bancor, especially with regards to the, um, the value that is quoted for an NFT, in particular cryptocurrencies, Bancor can service that sort of need really, really well. Um, and I think that, you know, we also have um, one of the best, you know, we have a, a, an exceptionally good UI team, UX team um, working on the protocol. And I think that we could, you know, create something like an open sea sort of experience, both for the digital artworks that NFTs represent today, but then also for more complex financial instruments um, at some point down the road. So I think, yeah, I know that this is a vague and rambling response and it's it's partially because I'm not really prepared to uh, to answer it because it is so so new and it's not a part of our product offering yet. But if NFTs are as important as they seem to be, then, you know, why would Bancor ignore it? It's definitely going to become part of the product at some stage. I'm just not sure when and what it will look like. I think that we have to wait and see what NFTs themselves decide to do between now and then as well. Absolutely. I was just going to touch on on what you're saying and also note that we uh, enjoy your profile picture from the Crypto Plebs. <laughs> and they also uh, they were nice enough to create a version of Danny and myself as well. So uh, it's interesting. To yeah, it's one of, with. That's all I want it's one of the greatest honors of my life to be immortalized in the form of a, a pixelated NFT. <laughs> it's great. And you're, uh, that was just kind of recent that you changed your, your profile pic to the uh... Yeah, my old, my old one was the um, SmartCon conference picture. Um, and so I guess, you know, once the conference is over, it was time to, to change it. I just, I liked the picture so much that I didn't do it right away. Um, and so when the, um, when the crypto plebe came out, I was like, okay, this is, uh, this is a sign. It's time to, um, to update the profile picture. Yeah, you just, you just have to. I mean, you can't not do it. Um, I can't not do it. Exactly. <laughs> right. It was actually, uh, it's a so, funny story. So the crypto, I, I wasn't in time. Um, someone bought it in like the first few minutes of um, of the crypto pleas being released. And I was like, oh, you know, I was kind of disappointed, but I was like, okay, that's all right, whatever. Um, but then the guy that bought it actually contacted me privately and said, I bought this crypto plea for you. And so, you know, if you want it, it's yours. And so, you know, I, I reimbursed him the gas cost and everything, but, you know, it was actual community member that secured it on my behalf. Um, and someone's also secured uh, our CTOs, Yudi Levi, and also Nate Hinman's our head of growth. But both of those users, like, you know, told Nate and Yudi that if they want their, their NFTs, they're going to have to pay them like billions of dollars. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna have to, it's funny that you have to pay for your, a picture of yourself, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, we, we know these users well. And so it's, uh, it's all in, in jest. I just thought it was funny that I had such a disney experience of someone doing something so kind and then uh yudi and nate who have been associated with the project for a long longer than i have uh, are basically being held at gunpoint for their for their nfts that's great <laughs> that's a, that's a funny story about your uh, your profile picture but 
Uh, so you just talked about the evolution of NFTs, uh, and prior we talked about the evolution of of Bancor, and wow, that's it was quite a road. Um, which brings me to my next point: uh, Bancor V3. We've yeah. seen the graphics, we've seen videos, we've seen teasers. You talked about it at SmartCon, and even uh, this. I think it was this week the Bancorian uh, Weekly, your your the weekly um, Bancorian newsletter came out. And it was talking, or it showed uh, the user interface and what it could look like, kind of the template. And I recommend anyone listening here to check that out on on the Bancorian. Um, when and what can we expect in in V3, and what kind of problems will be solved from two point one to three? Yeah. So there's, uh, I mean, it's still not entirely clear to me what's what's kosher and what's not to to discuss. Um, I I know that I can't tell you whether the release date is yet. Um, partially because there's still some open issues that um, you know uh, that I was working on b- before attending this call, and that I'll be working afterwards. So you know, it's not like it's not coming like next week or something. It's still a little ways out. But I would be really disappointed if it doesn't touch ground this year. I am absolutely committed to getting all of the work done and um, getting everything audited and getting everything implemented before the end of the year. But we haven't actually announced anything yet and we're still in that kind of you know development cycle where there are some things that it's really hard to know how long it will take and then there are some things that are really easy to know how long it will take so once we've completed this kind of vague period right where everything kind of crystallizes all of a sudden um, then we'll be able to sort of accurately project how far away things are we're just at that point yet uh, we've told the community that we'll give them a three weeks head, heads up and we just need to, you know, we just need people to be patient with us. I, I think it's something that the consequences for rushing something like this are catastrophic, right? We're, we're doing, um, you know, it, it's a almost a $2 billion protocol now. If we mess something up because we're trying to race something out just to meet a, an arbitrary deadline, it will just be, you know, it'll just be a, a tragedy. So we're not doing that. We're, we're letting it take the time that is, is required. Um, and, you know, for most software development stuff, we're still moving at a breakneck pace. I think it, it's weird. Um, and I think it's partially because of how closely cryptocurrency projects interface with their communities um, that we kind of feel this, you know, um, exaggerated pressure to constantly ship stuff. Whereas, you know, if you're slightly more isolated from um, your consumer base, your users, um, things tend to, to move at a, a more normal pace. So I, I was on a, a call just recently with um, a, a bunch of you know, really prominent people from around the cryptocurrency sphere. And um, the, uh, Amanda, the new, the new head of marketing at, at Sushi was there. And she, she said that one of the things that she was doing was talking to the devs and asking them like, you know, this thing that you're, you're about to um, you know, produce for, for SushiSwap and implement that, you, that you've been told to do in three months. Like how long would that usually take in traditional software development, like in a traditional software development cycle? And their response is, you know, the same as, you know, what I hear from people that I speak to directly. It was something like, yeah, this, what we're doing in three months would usually take about a year. Um, And I think that that's, you know, it it kind of speaks to this, um, you know, I I would say, let's say a problematic, it's not toxic at all because it's because people are excited and they want to, you know, they can't wait for the next thing. And, you know, they, they want to see their projects advance and it's hyper competitive. But I also think that it's this type of um, culture that's leading to, you know, so many um, exploits and, and other things occurring. So just, you know, at Bancor, we've been around for, for long enough that we know not to do that. 
and so we're not rushing anything. We're we're making sure that everything is is airtight by the time it gets released, um, and that sometimes means that you know we have to wait a little while for for a deadline announcement or something. And so you know, I I think in the beginning our community was getting really um, antsy about it, but then with the you know the slew of um, of hacks on other protocols that occurred. Um, over the time that we've been preparing V3, I feel like now people are a little bit more forgiving or understand the need for um, for being cautious and doing everything right. So um, yeah, when is still an open question. My I speculate it will be here before the end of the year. But if we find you know if we find that it, it needs a little bit longer, then it might take a little bit longer. In terms of the types of features that you can expect, um, I want to bring your attention to a lot of the things that I've kind of already said either in other podcasts, other interviews at the, the Chainlink conference and also in this um, in this conversation, which is that we know what's wrong with AI. Right? We know that um, capital inefficiency is a, a big problem and that we, we need to deal with that. Um, we, you know, we will we'll continue to make sure that impermanent loss is something that liquidity providers aren't exposed to. Um, and then these other things that I've already alluded to, things like the opportunity cost of if you're providing liquidity with a token, um, that means you're not to use that token for some other purpose, like you know, um, like a, a proof of stake consensus or something. Because we've said that we want users to be able to do both of those things at once, right? You can provide Ethereum liquidity and also stake on Beacon Chain or something for the proof of stake. Because you can do both of those things, if you are able, you should start thinking about what does that actually mean for the infrastructure of the Bancor protocol. It's going to be unrecognizable to what it is today. Right at the moment, a liquidity pool is just a place where you put tokens, and the protocol puts tokens in Bancor's case, um, and people trade against it. And all it does is achieve an automatic price. But a, a liquidity pool can be so much more than that. With a smart contract, there is so much that you can sort of programmatically introduce into, um, uh, you know, a store of capital that can mean that the people that provided capital there are able to get yields from all kinds of different places. I think the, um, the best example and maybe the strongest inspiration for myself with regards to how I think about liquidity pools um, came from Balances version two, right? Where they sort of said that, look, at the moment you've got all of these kind of um, disparate liquidity pools that have separated tokens um, across all of these, you know, in a very piecemeal sort of way. But you can actually reorganize it to kind of put it all together and then um, have liquidity pools as being sort of separate uh, features of this one, you know, one store of value. Um, and the, the flexibility that that gives you the, to, to achieve any number of financial, um, financial goals is quite profound. I, I'm, I'm forced to kind of talk about it in this vague way because I know that I, you know, I'll be reprimanded if I if I give away too many details, but I'm, I'm trying to get you guys to, to think about what a liquidity pool is and what it can do and what these protocols can can mean. Because I think that we're starting to see that the boundaries between different financial services are gonna start becoming eroded away. Like the difference between a lending protocol and a yield aggregator and a DEX and all of these things are gonna start looking more and more, like, more and more like each other. I fully expect that, you know, decades from now, um, Aave, for example, will probably have uh, a, a DEX feature incorporated within it or be directly linked to, to some DEX where those kinds of things can happen. There's so much that has been unexplored with you know, the ability to stake tokens and earn yield that um, I, I hope that Bancor is going to be the first to, um, to really start 
opening the floodgates of, of what's possible there. But I know for a fact that we're not the only ones thinking about it. I'm looking at, at sushi thinking about and thinking, yeah, you know, they've, they've got a, they've got a, a pretty good head on their shoulders. And I can tell that we're kind of looking at the same target, although that target is pretty far away and the path to getting there is, is going to be quite different. But I do think that all of these, um, all of the big DeFi projects, all of the ones that that really understand what the the long term goals are, are going to start doing very similar moves. With all of that in mind, I just want to, you know, let everyone know that Bancor is constantly um, paying attention to what's shifting the um, the sentiment in the ecosystem, what kind of features users want at the moment, but also what future users, right, the the banks and institutions and governments are going to want to do. And Bancor V3 is like the first technological fork of Bancor, right? Up until now, everything has been sort of a, a cosmetic change in a sense, that the actual contracts themselves didn't change very much, just some sort of uh, surface level code on top that changed the way that they behave. But Bancor V3 is uh, tearing everything out at the roots and rebuilding the, um, the protocol from scratch in order to be more portable, more adaptable, more gas efficient, everything that we need it to be for, for every point in the future. So again, I apologize for the vague response, um, but I'm sure you appreciate that, you know, if I started revealing industry secrets on this call that I might not be allowed to make these calls anymore. <laughs> Listen, you can break any news here, but we definitely want to be able to have you uh, on community calls and joining <laughs> us in the future. So we understand completely no need to apologize. I mean, this is a, a great place to sort of, jump uh to at least offer some questions from the community as we're we're closing up here uh and i know we have a request i'm going to bring up uh i'm going to bring up the request from Canucklink to ask a question now and if you guys have any questions now's your chance just send a request you can come ask mark a couple questions we'll let you up uh and then uh we'll get you out of here mark thank you for so much for spending time with us at investorly tonight uh talking about Bancor, and uh, you've dropped a lot of breadcrumbs and now's a chance uh for us to just say thank you. This is something I'm curious about. I bet others are. So, you know, listen, uh, myself, I know Danny, I know a lot of people that are in our uh, sphere use Bancor actively, have been, uh, you know, staking for long periods of time. Let's say we've made, you know, we've staked and we've staked and we've made multiple uh, transactions in staking. Something I'm curious about, is there any uh, consideration or is there going to be the potential for the ability in the future where let's say you want to remove something that you won't have to do it in multiple tr transactions, but you could necessarily sort of group them? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, we know everything that's kind of wrong with version 2.1. A lot of these, um, let, let's say, user frustrations are kind of the the unintended consequences of the design, right? It's It's something where the the way that we track impermanent loss the the behavior of the protocol at a very low level makes it necessary for you know these you know for each position to be handled as a separate transaction that sort of thing you know we're hoping to address all of that in like one swoop with a, a lot of the the new features of, of Bancor v3 so absolutely you should expect all of those problems to like evaporate from from day one of of Bancor v3 release Wow. Okay. It was worth it. I made, made my night. I was waiting for that. I, I thought that that was probably going to be the answer to be fair, but I think that's a good question for uh, users that uh, are in the audience. So thank you for that. We lost Canuck guys, but I'm going to ask Canuck's question. He sent it to me in the message. 
And uh, here's the question. He said, uh, he said, thanks to you, Mark, for joining us on the on the space. But he says, since Bancor is blockchain agnostic, one, can you talk about sort of the L2s and their plans uh, incorporated in V3? And also, will Bancor take advantage of DeFi incentives on other chains? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we're, we're actually already talking to um, to other groups um, so that they can, um, you know, what their uh, role might be in providing, um, you know, in- incentives to stakers on, on Bancor version three. And absolutely, we are uh, looking at the, the layer two scaling solutions as well as other layer ones. Um, the, the problem is that it's not always clear exactly which layer two you should go to or which layer one you should go to um, because it's not like it's, it, it's completely free. There's a, a pretty significant overhead expense um, to making the, um, to, you know, recreating the protocol in a new environment. And then if it's a new environment, like, for example, Arbitrum is new and Optimism is new. Polygon is, is now a little bit more seasoned, so it's a little more predictable. But certainly Avalanche is quite new. When you go to these new chains, you kind of inherit all of the risk of the undiscovered bugs. And it's just a fact of life that all new software is going to have bugs. And some of those bugs are probably pretty minor. Actually, almost all of them are extremely minor, um, but some of them are much more profound. And Ethereum has already been through this process, by the way. I feel like everyone forgets that once Ethereum was a new chain um, and it has been hacked, right? It, it, there was a 51% a 51% double spend hack that caused uh, Ethereum to, um, to branch into Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. Um, and you know there will be these kinds of cataclysmic events on other chains into the future. It's just a question of which which chains are more likely to have it, and um, which chains do we feel confident won't have these kinds of problems. Yeah, we we basically pay as much attention as we can to how um, different scaling solutions are are implemented. Um, we feel really we feel pretty good about Polygon, although the spam in Polygon is. Um, at a bit of a, an issue, but I think it's addressable and it will go away with time. Obviously, we've had a, a, a test, uh, we've had a, a deployment of the protocol network um, on Arbitrum's testnet, and that worked uh, pretty well. So we, we know what what we have to do to, to go there, and so it shouldn't. I don't think anyone will be surprised when when Bancor uh, finally launches on Arbitrum. Up until this point, we've all changed, right? I remember being a part of a, a, a conversation about moving the, or not moving, but about um, recreating the Bancor protocol on, on blockchain. And at the time, you know, we were paying attention to everything that everyone else was paying attention to, right? It's, it's a lot faster, it's a lot cheaper, their user base is exploding. But now like in retrospect, I'm kind of glad we didn't go there, right? I, I feel like our, our patience and caution um, has, has rewarded us. Um, and that's not always going to be true, right? I, I think that, for example, if we went to to Polygon when um, when we were first having that conversation, it probably would have been fine, right? Nothing really catastrophic has happened on Polygon, and I don't think anything will. I think that Polygon is probably going to be a, a relatively secure, stable, and sustainable um, layer two scaling solution. But at the time when we, you know, before we started working on layer on um, on version three it really wasn't clear yet, right? There, there might've been some catastrophic failure just around the corner on Polygon. And so, you know, porting a protocol there and then dealing with the, the consequences of something like that while trying to develop version three is just not a good use of, of developer resources or, or the brain power on the team. 
So yeah, we, we absolutely will start, you know, moving out to these layer two scaling solutions. It's, it's uh, unquestionable, right? It will happen. Um, it's just, it really comes down to what our relationship with, um, with those teams is. Our, our, our happy to report that our relationship with the Polygon team is, is really strong. Um, and moving um, up to, to Polygon is going to be relatively easy. Um, we also have a really great um, relationship with, with Arbitrum. And so uh, I expect that to also be fast and easy. Um, and, you know, like I said before, version three is made to be portable. So its lightweightness will also make it easier and faster and less expensive to, to move. Um, but things like, like Avalanche, maybe let's give it some time. You know, I, I think it's a terrific blockchain. I'm, I'm really excited to see um, DeFi develop there um, and all of the new stuff that's coming out. There's some really terrific DeFi protocols there already, like, um, like Trader Joe, for example, I think is, um, is hugely promising. You know, once it starts carving out um, a little um, niche for itself in, in DeFi, what ends up happening is that you also end up creating an extremely large bug bounty, right? For someone who is, um, you know, it, it, once some of the TVLs on, on these new chains get, you know, past a certain um, point, um, the attractiveness to exploit the blockchain for any weaknesses that people haven't found yet becomes irresistible, right? To, to some dedicated um, antagonists. And so really there's no line in the sand where you say, okay, now enough time has passed or now the TVL is high enough that we trust it. We really just have to wait and you know, ask ourselves constantly, how are we feeling about this blockchain today? And as our confidence gets better and better, like it has with Polygon, like it's happening with, with Solana. Um, and as the, another important thing is the economic hacks. So as the, uh, the wealth on that chain becomes more and more distributed. Um, we also get more and more trusting of, of that particular blockchain. So at the moment, Ethereum is really the only blockchain that has a, what you would call a decentralized source of, of capital. Every other blockchain right now has, you know, the majority of its capital coming from a singular source. Um, and, but eventually one day that won't be true anymore. And those blockchains will, will start to look a lot more attractive. So yeah, th that's kind of our plans. I, I hope I've, you know, tried to, uh, sorry, I hope that I've made it clear what our um, reluctance is, right? It's not like we're, we're outright rejecting any of these other chains. We are blockchain agnostic and we are looking forward to being present on other chains. It's just a question of, um, what is the, what is the risk that you're inheriting when you're going there? And if it's still very much unknown, um, then it's usually better to wait. Um, we don't think that, that we're conceding, you know, a huge amount of, of mind share or, or network effects or something by being just a little bit later. As I pointed out before, we're still like crazy early. Like DeFi is barely getting started. It's still a baby. It's still learning to crawl. Um, so if we have to wait, you know, like a, a few more weeks or something, or, or even a couple of months, I don't think it's going to be the end of the world. We'd like to thank Mark Richardson and the community for a great conversation. To stay informed of upcoming conversations, subscribe to the Investorly newsletter at investorly.substack.com. Investorly. Invest early in yourself.